Father, we open your word and lay it before you tonight. And we ask that you would bring the words off the page and apply them to our hearts and speak them to us, Father. Father, there's some tough stuff in this chapter and and actually in the next couple of chapters as we look at the last half of that tribulation period, a time of Jacob's trouble. A time when we know, Lord, that you're going to pour out your wrath on a Christ-rejecting and sinful world. And we pray, Lord, as we study these things, that you would give us insight for today. We're not just looking at these to have a, a fanciful look at the future, but to have a sober look at the world in which we live today, and at friends and family and people we know who don't know you. And we pray, Father, that you will make us with every page we turn and every line we read and study will make us more tenacious to speak the name of Jesus and you will fill our hearts with a desire to spread the gospel the good news of Christ which is a promise not only of salvation uh, but a promise to be saved and protected against the very things we're going to look at tonight and Lord I pray that we would walk out of here encouraged encouraged Father because we know that we know that we know that Christ Jesus you are in control And that your will will be accomplished. And that your word that you send forth will accomplish everything you send it to do. And will achieve all of its purposes. Father, we are convinced of and are sure in your promises, your word, that you are a God who keeps your word, as we talked about today. And so we pray, Father, that you would open our minds again to your word. To pour it out. And help us to hear and pay attention to what the Spirit has to say to the churches. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, we are told, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. The book of Revelation is the only book in the Bible that guarantees a blessing. Now, the blessing can be many things, and as I've studied through this, and i found this to be the case uh, every time I've studied this book, whether personally or, or teaching through it, with every study of this book, I have found my life to be blessed in unique and wonderful ways. Ways often connected to the study of the book, but even it's amazing how when the Lord sees you in the Revelation, and studying it and looking into these things that are so important to Him, He wants to bless that. And he does. He blesses those who not only hear the words of the prophecy, but who read the words and who heed the things that are written in this book. Now, there are many things a lot of times that will happen in a study of the book of Revelation. Many blessings that will come. But first and foremost, understand that the blessing of the Revelation is the Revelation. The blessing is in the Revelation itself. Romans 16.25, Paul said, Now to him who is able to establish you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. To the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Amen. The revelation of the mystery. That which was not known in the past but has been made known in this church age. That Jesus made known. That Jesus expressed and explained. Remember the the Bible says in John chapter 1. 
that no man has seen God, but Jesus, who came as God in the flesh, explained Him to us, expressed Him to us, revealed God to us in a way that had not been done before. Jesus is the revelation Himself, but also along with Jesus came the revelation of God's mystery, of His plan, of what He was doing all along. We receive that as we study this book. Paul went on to say, in an earlier part of the letter to the church at Rome, in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, he said, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. And that is the beauty of the book of Revelation. The Lord brings us revelation so that we can be saved before the revelation of his righteous judgment. You see, that's mercy. It's not mercy to judge someone without any forewarning. It's not mercy just all of a sudden out of the blue to come down hard on somebody. It's mercy to tell them ahead of time, if this happens, then judgment will occur. And that's the merciful love of God. Before the wrath comes, before the tribulation comes, He lays out exactly what happens so that we can know beyond the shadow of a doubt, this is what the book says, this is what God promises will happen. He tells us now so that we don't have to take part in this. So that we don't have to be involved in it. So that, as Jesus says, we can be saved from the wrath of God. Protected from it. Now in chapter 1, we see in the book of Revelation that he reveals himself, Jesus does, to John in all of his glory, the revealed Christ. In chapters 2 and 3, Jesus revealed the entirety of the church age through the letters to those seven churches. In chapters 4 and 5, Jesus reveals again the wonderful mystery of the church being caught up to heaven. As Jesus said in Revelation 3.10, He will keep us from the hour of testing, that which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. He reveals in Revelation 6-19 through 19, the tribulation. And that tribulation, as we spoke about last week, He frames it with three series of seven judgments each. Three series of judgments. That's called the tribulation. Actually, the first three and a half years are the tribulation. The last three and a half years, Jesus called the great tribulation. For it's in the last three and a half years that God pours out His absolute righteous wrath on the earth. We see the bold judgments that we'll begin to look at tonight all take place in the latter half of the tribulation. In the first half of the tribulation, the trumpet judgments and the seal judgments, which we'll talk about again in just a moment. So chapter 6 through 19, we see that revelation of the tribulation. Chapter 19, wonderfully, fantastically, Jesus reveals his own coming, his return, his glorious and wonderful return. It's one of my favorite studies in the whole study of Revelation when we get to chapter 19 and we see the bridegroom who cometh. We see the bride ready for the groom, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and then the return of Jesus with many thousands of his holy ones. It's an awesome chapter. Chapter 20, we'll see that he reveals the coming millennial kingdom. That thousand year reign of Christ. Six times, by the way, in chapter 20 of Revelation, he says it's a thousand years. As if to make sure we don't miss it. That it's not some kind of generic, spiritualized thing. He says, no, it's a thousand year reign. Now some have said, well, John was just picking a number out of the blue. You know, a big number because he was trying to express a long period of time. And John was a little smarter than that. Now people back in John's day were not as dumb as we might think they were. As a matter of fact, in many ways, they were much smarter than we are. 
So in chapter 20, Jesus reveals the coming millennial kingdom and then he wraps up the whole book in chapters 21 and 22 revealing the future creation of a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem where we will all live happily ever after. The great blessing of Revelation is the revelation. It's that we can know these things and walk in these things and have great motivation, knowing what's to come, motivation to share the great and glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we've spent the last several weeks looking at the revelation of the tribulation. This horrible last seven years, this this time period that is made up with a series of judgments. Three judgments. We talked about those last week. The seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and as we get into this week, the bowl judgments. And I began thinking about it. And thinking, what is it exactly? Why these symbols? Why did God choose seals and then trumpets and then bowls. He could have just said three series of judgments and here's the first series, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and here's the second series and here's the third series. But he chooses specific things to connect them to, pictures, because he wants us to understand something. The question that came to mind for me this week is what do these three sets of judgments reveal in their typology? Well, the first set is the seal judgments. That was back in chapter 6. We studied that, looked at that. The seal judgments. Why seals? Because as we talked about, the seals on a scroll are one by one broken. And if you understand anything specifically about uh, Jewish selling of land, you understand that the scroll sealed with seven seals would be a title deed. That the breaking of the seals on that scroll is the revealing or the releasing or the securing of a title deed that had gone into foreclosure. The title deed, the title deed of planet Earth, that went into foreclosure when Adam and Eve sinned, gave up the title deed, gave it over, it was given over into the hands of Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the god of this world. And it's only through the blood of Jesus Christ that that title deed could be reclaimed. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. He secures the title deed of planet Earth. That's what the seal judgments explain to us. In those judgments, the securing of the title deed of planet Earth. What about the trumpet judgments? Well, think about this. Chapters 8 and 9 and 11, trumpets sound the alarm. They sound the alarm and trumpets salute the coming of a king. They sound the alarm, salute the coming king. The first two sets of judgments then make up the first half of the tribulation. The sounding of the alarm, that warning, the bad things are coming. What's interesting then is we come then to the last set of judgments, the bowl judgments, chapter 16, which make up again the entire last three and a half years of the tribulation period. Now this might be of interest to you, the Greek word for bowl is fiale, fiale. Now you can spell that if you're writing out notes, P-H-I-A-L-E, fiale. It sounds awful familiar. It's a lot like an English word that we have. In fact, it's where we get the word vile. V-I-A-L, vile. It's a small, often shallow bowl, sometimes with an enclosure on the top, used for serving or storing liquids, and it has an historical linkage to medicine. Vials. We think about that. When you think about vials, you think about science or medicine and and the use of, of vials to bring about some sort of, well, some sort of healing. In the bold judgments or vile judgments, the Lord, and listen to this, the Lord is administering chemotherapy. That's what he's doing. That's very different than the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments. The seal judgments and trumpet judgments are still an attempt on the part of the Lord to get the attention of mankind. 
For the seal is the reclaiming of that title deed. The trumpets, that sound of warning. The king is coming and he's going to be angry. And you want to be ready. Be careful. Be forewarned that there is more coming in the way of judgments. And so though those first two sets of judgments are heavy and harsh, they are still judgments with an eye to repentance. But you get down to the last set of judgments, the bowl or vile judgments, and they truly are vile. They're not about repentance anymore. It's chemotherapy. Seven angels, as we saw in chapter 15, which is preparatory for chapter 16, seven angels are prepared to pour out of these vials or these bowls the last seven judgments of God, which will complete God's judgment on planet Earth. These seven angels you could call the chemo angels. You've heard anything about chemo angels? The chemotherapy, think about what chemotherapy does. It poisons. It kills. Good cells as well as bad cells. It goes after the cancer. And the whole idea is when someone has cancer, that the chemo will kill everything in the area, render it dead so that the cancer can't continue to, to do what it's doing. Cells that are eating good cells alive, that's cancer. Cells eating cells. Cells that are multiplying destruction in the body. That's cancer. Sounds an awful lot like sin, doesn't it? Sin that begets sin that begets sin. It multiplies. It feeds on itself. And as it feeds on itself, it grows. And this is what happens with humanity. The more that we sin, the more sin feeds on itself. And the bigger sin gets and the more that it grows. Till you get down to the waning days of planet Earth. And the sin is rampant in the world. And God says, enough. I will now administer chemotherapy. The cells, this may seem harsh, but they must be stopped or the cancer will spread to all the cells. That's what we saw happen with Noah. When you get down to eight good cells left. And so to keep that from spreading, even across the last living remnant of human beings on earth, God administered chemotherapy in the form of the flood, wiping out earth at the time. Now again, I want you to understand this before we get into it. The first two sets of judgments were about repentance. We called it early on boot camp for the Hebrew. It's boot camp. Taking them into the hard place, and it's in the hard place often. It's in the wilderness that God retrains the mind of, of the Jewish person. That's what we're seeing in the book of Numbers in our study there. It's retraining and reclaiming the Jewish people for his own. Refocusing their dependence on him. Boot camp for the Hebrew. But the first two sets of judgments are brat camps for the heathen. And the idea of sending your kid off to brat camp because there's nothing else that can be done with them but this is a last ditch effort of mom and dad to try and save their child. And so the first two sets of judgments, that's what we see going on from the heart of the Lord. That last ditch effort. I want to save you. I am harshly disciplining you to get your attention so that maybe some will come to repentance. And they do. As we talked about, we see a massive harvest of souls in those last seven years, in the first three and a half years of the last seven. A huge harvest of souls, of people being saved by the work of the Lord when He is administering this, this brat camp. But the last seven judgments are vile judgments. They're no longer about repentance. They now are about killing off sinful cells, meeting out full vengeance and judgment on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. Keep your finger in Revelation 16 and flip quickly to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. Beginning in verse 4. 2 Peter 2.4. Peter writes, if God 
did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, the preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then, if all these things, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. So again, just as the world was destroyed and Noah preserved, just as Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed and Lot was rescued, gang, this sin-polluted earth will receive a massive, massive change followed by a brand new start. We're going to get there toward the end of our study of Revelation. But right now, as we look at these seven bold judgments or vile judgments back in Revelation 16, we need to understand that what Jesus referred to as the Great Tribulation is chemotherapy. It's chemotherapy for the world. It's a destruction of the rebellious cells, a cleansing of the world. Why is that important? Listen, God doesn't destroy the world completely before the millennium. That will happen, if you think in terms of a timeline, that will happen after the millennium. Because the world, as we know it, is going to be cleaned up. But part of the cleaning up process is this chemotherapy. It is rendering the world to be without sin at the onset of the millennial kingdom. Does that make sense to everybody? That before Jesus comes for his millennial reign, before that kingdom is set up, God has to wipe clean this world of sin. Now, during the millennial kingdom, there will still be human beings capable of sin, but it will be under the reign of Jesus, and it will begin It will begin with perfection. It will not end that way. Again, that's a study for chapter 20, and you need to be here for that to understand all these things. But in the meantime, that last half of the tribulation, not only is God pouring out wrath, but he's cleaning up the world. He is taking out sin. That's why I call it chemotherapy. It's the removal of every possible bad cell so that the world will have opportunity under the reign of Jesus to function the way it's supposed to. With all this in mind, there is one more question I want to ask before we get into this chapter. And it's a question that frames the chapter from beginning to end. And the question is simply this. Is there a point of no return in terms of repentance? Is there a point of no return? Is there a place where a person absolutely cannot repent any longer? A time where every opportunity has been afforded and the person cannot turn around and seek the forgiveness of God. Keep that question in mind. Revelation chapter 16 verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls or vials or bottles. All three of those words will work. The seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. A couple things to notice real quickly where it says the earth. In verse 1, go and pour out on the earth. That literally is on the earth dwellers. 
pour out this wrath on the earth dwellers, those who have chosen to make the earth their home. This world is not my home. I don't know about you. We live in a beautiful place, as we've talked about before. God has blessed me with a wonderful uh, homestead for a short time. But that is not my home. This barn is not our home. And this world is not our home. We are not earth dwellers. We're children of the King. He's preparing a place for us. But he says, go and pour out on the earth dwellers the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went out and poured out his bowl on the earth. And it became a loathsome and malignant sore, specifically on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. Now the loud voice that speaks in verse 1 is most likely Jesus. It's nice to hear that because he's still in charge. He's still the boss. He is still running things. And don't forget that this is the main point of Revelation. The revelation of the end times. No, it's not the revelation of the end times. It's not the revelation of any other thing but the glory of Jesus Christ as Messiah. This is what the revelation is about. He is in full command and from his command center, Jesus calls out. And so we get to the first bowl. And you can just jot these down if you're taking notes. The first bowl is loathsome, malignant sores. How does that sound? Loathsome, malignant sores. This bowl recalls the sixth plague that God poured out on Egypt. Let me read this to you. Exodus chapter 9 verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourselves handfuls of soot from a kiln, and let Moses throw it toward the sky in the sight of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the land of Egypt, and it will become boils breaking out with sores on man and beast through all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from a kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it toward the sky, and it became boils breaking out with sores on man and beast. Why do I mention that? Because it really happened. Not storybook fantasy stuff. This is history. What God promises to do in the bold judgments, He has already at some level done. Only this time, it's not just on little Egypt. This time, it's worldwide. On everybody who has taken the mark of the beast. Everybody who now is in the service of Satan. Well, wait a minute, Rick. You're telling me that the whole world, that everyone who takes the mark is in the service of Satan? Absolutely, because as we've said before, and the Bible is clear, no one's going to take that mark by accident. Everybody who takes the mark of the beast, it will, it's not going to be like, oh, I was handed this credit card. I didn't know this was the mark. <laughs> I had no idea. I had this little implant put in my hand so that I could buy stuff. I didn't know it was about Satan. No, they will know. There's no question. The choice a person makes to take the mark is a choice for the beast. It's a choice for Antichrist. A choice for Satan. And what's interesting is God, as he pours this out, only, only pours it out on those who have taken the mark. In other words, those who don't, those who reject the mark, who will, by the way, lose their heads in martyrdom for their faith, those who reject the mark don't get these boils, these malignant, loathsome sores. Same thing happened with Israel when they were in Egypt. Interesting that all the Egyptians got the boils and the loathsome sores. The Israelites, they're in Goshen. They were fine. Not a problem. God made it clear who was for him and who was against him. The downside of that is those who are for him will suffer for it because they will be easily picked out. You have no malignant swords. Why? Well, why is it that you're okay and I'm not? You must be one of, those, one of those Christ followers. And it will mean struggle for them. Now what's interesting is Moses later warned all of Israel that if they rejected God, a similar curse to the boils that happened to the Egyptians in Egypt would fall on them. Listen to this, Deuteronomy 28, verses 15, verse 27, and verse 35, all in a row. 
It shall come about, Moses says, if you do not obey the Lord your God, to observe to do all His commandments and His statutes with which I charge you today, that these curses will come upon you and overtake you. The Lord will smite you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and with the scab and with the itch. If you're, are you the type of person like Mary Lee that if... Um, I'm just picking on you, Mary Lee. Actually, it wasn't you. It was, it was uh, Selena. She was the one. I, I was talking with Lou and Selena last night, and, and Sean and Mary Lee were out, and, and Selena was just talking about if you just talk about any kind of like sickness or anything, she immediately starts feeling the symptoms. And I said, so if someone starts talking about life, do you start scratching your head? You know, do, do you do that? My daughter came home with lice, and in two minutes I was going, Man, that's not good. Think about this loathsome, malignant source that tumors and scabs with the itch. Does that just make you itch thinking about it? This will be awful from head to toe. These sores that will be on all those who have taken the mark. And Moses says these, these scabs and tumors and sores and itches and boils, you will not be healed from them. He goes on in Deuteronomy 28.35, The Lord will strike you on the knees and the legs with sore boils from which you cannot be healed. From the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. You try walking on your feet, you're in pain. You try sitting down, you're in pain. You try to bend your knee, you're in pain. You scratch your head because someone says lice and you're in pain. From the head to the toe. And this is an apt description of the first bull or vile judgment. Horrible carcinogenic sores that cover the body of those who choose to take the mark. You know, at first it's going, to be, it's going to seem to some people that following Antichrist and taking the mark of the beast is a good thing. But as the Bible tells us in Proverbs 14:12, there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Now again, understand, the bowls of wrath are not the result of human failure, like the seal judgments, human sin. The seal judgments, and we talked about this, are just God allowing human sin to run its course. As the seals are broken, Antichrist comes on the scene, and war, and famine, and death, and these are all the decisions of humankind that result, these are all the sins of humankind that result in their own pain and tragedy in those seal judgments. But these judgments are not like that. It's not even the satanic freedom that we see given in the trumpet judgments. No, these judgments are now poured out angel by angel from the temple of God in heaven. They are God's full wrath. And as painful and loathsome sores appear on everybody's body throughout the world who has rejected Christ and accepted Antichrist, where do you think they're going to run for relief? Probably to the rivers and the oceans. You know, a good place to go when you're sick, you have a cold, one of the best things to do, maybe not right around here, but I grew up in Southern California, and going to the beach was about the fastest cure you could have for getting a cold. Swimming in the salt water just does amazing things to help you get better. My family, when I was around 10 years old, went on a trip to Hawaii. And while we were there, my brother got a high fever and got really sick for a couple of days. And I I was absolutely amazed, but my parents allowed him to go out and swim in the surf and be on the beach. He was cured in a couple days. It was all over it. So it's a great place to go, and so the people may be going to the shores of the sea to find some relief, but there will be no relief there. They're not going to find any healing in the waters of the sea, and they will find no relief in the cool mountain streams. Watch what happens next. Verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. Second 
bowl judgment, bloody seas. Bloody seas. Now you might think, well, that's kind of hard on the seas. Poor little orca. You know? Why the, how, how is that such a bad thing? You've got to process this. It's very familiar, first of all, to the, a couple of other judgments. The first plague in Egypt, where the Nile was turned to blood. Exodus chapter 7, verse 20. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. He lifted up the staff and struck the water that was in the Nile. And in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, all the water that was in the Nile was turned to blood. Did you realize that the the plagues on Egypt were precursors to the true plagues, the seven judgments God's going to pour out in the last three and a half years? They were a judgment that fell on Egypt. But they are pictures of what would happen, not just again nationwide, but worldwide during these last last plagues, these last judgments. It's interesting, at the end of this passage in Exodus chapter 7, verse 24, says the Egyptians dug around the Nile for water to drink because they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Interesting. The Nile was bloody for seven days. Seven days, that picture again, maybe a foreshadowing of the tribulation period. It's also similar to the second trumpet judgment. We've already seen seas turn to blood a little bit. Revelation chapter 8 verse 8 said the second angel sounded his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died and a third of the ships were destroyed. In fact, there are striking similarities and differences between the second uh, trumpet judgment and now the second bowl judgment. In the second trumpet judgment, a third of the sea is struck and becomes blood. In the second bowl judgment, the whole sea is now blood. Every ocean, you will not find a shore on planet Earth that doesn't have blood rolling up onto it. How awful. Sticky and stinking and awful. In the second trumpet judgment, a third of the creatures in the sea died. In the second bowl judgment, all the creatures in the sea will die. In the second trumpet judgment, a third of the ships are destroyed. In the second bowl judgment, all ships are now rendered useless. Going back and forth, it's it's not going to work. They will be stuck where they are. In the second trumpet judgment, a third of the sea is blood. In the second bowl judgment, all of the sea is covered with blood. And it's interesting if you think about it, Leviticus 17.11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Blood is life. We have to have blood to survive. Empty any of us out of our blood and we have no survival. It carries the nutrients. It moves that which needs to be moved in our our bodies from one place to another. It carries the oxygen. Blood is necessary for our very survival. Our lives depend on blood and without it we die. Our salvation depends on blood, doesn't it? For without it we die. Without the blood, the gracious blood of Jesus poured out of the cross, we are lost. We die. But this blood, here, this blood, the the bloody oceans, this is not even live blood. Listen to how it's described again. It became blood like that of a dead man. This is not live, living, functioning, good for you blood. This is dead blood. Blood that is now drying up. Blood that is now useless. It's hot It's sticky, it's stinking, dead blood. And so as the people run to the seas for some relief from these awful, loathsome sores, they think, well, where next? To the rivers. Get to the fresh water. That's where we need to go. So as they head to the rivers, we head to verse 4. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. You got it. Blood. 
The third bowl judgment, third vile judgment, rivers of blood. At this point in the tribulation, all sources of fresh water cease to be available on planet Earth. You can't get it. Evian is not going to help you. Dasani is not going to do you any good. There will be no fresh water on planet Earth. And no amount of conservation, by the way, is going to help that. No amount of storing up, trying to set aside bottled water somewhere, is going to protect against it. This judgment recalls, by the way, the third trumpet judgment, Revelation 8, 10 through 11. But it's vastly, vastly more severe. In the third trumpet judgment, a star called Wormwood made a third of the waters bitter and poisonous, but now every ounce of fresh water running through streams and rivers and creeks on planet Earth becomes blood. Thick, disgusting blood. Now, realize that right now, three-fourths of our planet's surface is water. So that means that at this point in the tribulation period, three-fourths of the planet's surface will be covered in blood. Dead blood. Why? When you think about how awful that will be in this judgment, and why, Lord, would you choose this? And why would you do this? Why this incredible glut of blood? Remember that this is the time of retribution. It's the time of wrath. It is the time of payback. And the Hebrew writer in Hebrews 10.26 says, If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. But a terrifying expectation of judgment and the full fury of wrath which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Listen, in our world, everyone wants mercy. And everyone wants justice. And we can't seem to balance the two in our court system. Someone's always going to prison who really didn't commit the crime. And someone's always going free who really should be going to prison. And the best that we can do with our loopholes in our laws and all kinds of problems, we cannot balance that perfect weight of justice and mercy. But God can. And God will. And even in this wrath, we see the vengeance is poured out. It is perfect justice. It is absolutely deserved. While this blood... Because mankind, over our several thousands of years of existence here on planet Earth, has spilled more than enough of blood ourselves. And that blood cries out. Remember Abel's blood? Abel, the first murder by the first two brothers. Cain murders Abel. And Abel's blood cries out to the Lord from the ground. And by the way, a little side note in that story in Genesis, Abel's blood, the word blood there, is literally in the Hebrew, blood's plural. Abel's bloods cry out from the ground. Because to the Jewish mind there's an understanding that if you kill one man you kill a generation. You haven't just killed one person. In a murder, that murder is of that person and the children he would have had and the children they would have had and the children they would have had on down the line. And so Abel, when he was killed, entire generations of Abel's family were murdered in one fell swoop. His bloods cried out to the Lord from the ground. We have saturated the earth. Humanity has saturated the earth in blood. God is only returning the favor. 
He's doing what is completely deserved. Well, reading on, look at this. It's very interesting. Verse 5. I heard the angel of the waters say, The angel of the waters, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. Or literally, they are worthy. When I think about what I am truly worthy of, and what I get, I'm blown away. I am worthy to have my blood spilled. What I get is redemption for the spilled blood of Jesus. I am not worthy of that. But that's what he offers. Who is this angel of the waters? Interesting that we see something about angels in Revelation we never knew before. Apparently there are angels who have environmental charges. And this one is the overseer of the waters. Angel of the waters. It's his job to watch over, to protect the waters. And by the way, God does care about this planet. It does matter to him, his creation. Not just human creation. But plant life, animal life, matters to the Lord. Uh, John 3.16 Tells us, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him will not perish but have eternal life. The word for world there in the Greek is cosmos. It literally speaks of all creation, not just people. God so loved the cosmos. But listen, this may be a little strange to consider, but there will be salvation for creation. The Bible is clear about this. When the sons of God are revealed, creation will experience its own salvation. What do you mean when the sons of God are revealed? Listen to this. Paul writes in Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Amazing. He says when the sons of God are revealed, creation is going to go through, wow, a new era, a new age. This creation, this created world. When the sons of God are revealed, when does that happen? We'll get there in Revelation 19. But I'll give you a little hint. You are the sons of God. You are the daughters of God. And in that day where that vast, wonderful revelation happens on planet Earth, and the Earth recognizes and sees the sons of God revealed, coming with Jesus, by the way, in all His glory, all of creation is going to go through a salvation experience. And the environment will be cleaned up. And we'll be taken care of in ways that we can't even possibly imagine today. Angels in Revelation, now we understand, appear to have all kinds of roles. They're messengers, they're ministers, they're worshipers. But in Revelation, we can add one more to the list. They are caretakers. Revelation chapter 7, verse 1, tells us we have angels who are holding back the winds or who have authority or power over the winds of the earth. Revelation 16:5 again we see this angel of the waters. And this angel has a specific charge to care for and oversee and look after the waters of earth. What's interesting to me is he doesn't strap himself to a tree when God is now saying he's going to judge the waters and he pours out the blood on the waters. We don't see this angel you know, strapped to a tree and saying, I'm not going to let you do it. We don't see him lying down in front of a tractor. What we see this angel doing is saying, 
Praise God. Praise God. God, you are right on. Why would the angel who protects the waters watch his waters turn to blood and say, Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Because this angel understands something. The earth deserves it. Humanity is worthy of it. Now notice who else agrees with God's judgment. Verse 7, I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. The altar, the altar which is in heaven, is now crying out. The altar itself? Rick, do you really think that it's the altar who is crying out from heaven that that these judgments are righteous and true? Is, Is it really? It could be. I wouldn't put it past the Lord to give voice to the altar to speak in praise to the Lord. However, I think there's a more likely possibility here. I think that the voice emanating from the altar comes from those who are beneath the altar. Look back at Revelation chapter 6. Look back a few chapters. We've seen these people before. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9. Is that right? Yeah, okay. Yeah, right. (laughs) When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. Now watch what they do. They cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who are to be killed even as they had been would be completed also how long O Lord cry out these martyred saints saints martyred from across time saints martyred in the tribulation period those who have given their lives to Jesus and ultimately end up giving their lives for Jesus are now gathered together all around underneath the altar And they, early on in Revelation, they cry out, How long until we're avenged? How long? They are crying for what so many of us cry for. Justice. When will justice be done? What was done to us was unjust. We don't deserve this. When will you pay back, O Lord? And here in Revelation 16, this voice emanates from the altar. Yes, O Lord, God the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. The waiting is over. Final judgment has begun. And this is awesome. If this is in fact a reference to those martyred saints beneath the altar, they now now have an altered view. An altered perspective. Back in Revelation 6, they couldn't understand. All they knew was that they had been unjustly martyred for their faith. They couldn't understand why it wasn't being paid back. You think about that in the world today. Why is it that the child molester goes free? Why is it that the murderer sits in prison while the murdered is dead? Why is it that there is so much injustice and sometimes it just makes you want to cry out, How long, Lord, are you going to allow this to go on? How long will you allow these injustices in the world? But there will be a point in time where like those gathered underneath the altar, we will say, Righteous and just and perfect are your judgments, Lord. Your timing is perfect. Your will is perfect. Your justice is ultimate. I had no idea. An altered perspective. Keep your finger there in Revelation 16. Turn back to 2 Samuel for just a moment. 
2 Samuel in chapter 6. I want to digress just for a second. Chapter 6 and verse 1, the second book of Samuel. It's a fascinating story, you may have heard it before, where David wants to move the ark into Jerusalem. Into the place that he believed it should be for a long time. It tells us in verse 1 that David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. And they placed the ark of God on a new cart. Had it all shined up and ready to go. They're about to have a wonderful parade. But they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. And they brought it out, the ark of God, from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord. They had all kinds of instruments made of fir wood with lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. They had a full brass band. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen, uh-oh, nearly upset it. It's going to fall. He reaches out. He touches it. Verse 7, the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. Now, draw back from Scripture for a moment. Place yourself in David's sandals, and how would you react? I am bringing the ark of God back to Jerusalem. I'm trying to restore the heart of Israel to the right place, to bring the worshippers. We're celebrating. We're praising you, Lord. All Uzzah wanted to do was protect the ark to keep it from falling off the cart. It's not his fault. And you kill him, you strike him dead in the middle of my marvelous procession here? How could you do this? It tells us that David became angry in verse 9 because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah. To this day, literally, the Lord broke out. Or the Lord broke through and took out Uzzah. Verse 9. So, by the way, don't ever name a son Uzzah. If you have a child, it's probably just a bad idea to avoid that. Verse 9. So David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? In other words, how can I return to church? How can I go back to worship after what's happened in my life? How can I serve and trust God after what he's allowed here? I can't go where the ark is. It's too dangerous. I just don't trust and believe that God wants to care for me anymore. How can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David, verse 10, was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom. Now there's a great name for a son. Obed-Edom the Gittite. Thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. This is the best thing that ever happened in Obed-Edom's life. He now has the ark there, and God's saying, I like this house. I'm going to settle here for a while. And he begins just to bless everything. Life goes very well for Obed-Edom. And it was told, verse 13, to King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. So David, watch what he does, went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of of David with gladness. And so it was that when the bearers of the ark, now something's different 
off the bat here. It's not on a cart. God prescribed exactly how the ark was to be covered, uh, carried back in Exodus on poles by priests, not on an ox cart, not on some fancy parade. Don't do it your way. Don't prepare it your way. You do it the way I told you to do it. So many churches today, gang, are having wonderful programmed parades. The music's awesome. The church building, wonderful. You might as well have the church on a big float going down Main Street looking like the world. It's clean. It's shiny. It's sharp. It's, it's, this is how we're going to get the attention of the world. And God says, you don't carry my ark on a cart. You don't do it that way. You want to do it the way I want you to do it? You carry it. You carry it. You do it my way. And so David understands that. He's starting to have an altered perspective. But look, it's even better. It tells us going on that when the bearers of the Lord, of the ark of the Lord, had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. Verse 13 is one of the most significant verses in the Bible. What David understood, came to understand, in the functioning of God was that you do things, first of all, God's way. But secondly, you understand your sinfulness in the face of God. Well, how do you see that in verse 13? They went six paces, built an altar, and sacrificed. All the way from Obed-Edom's house to Jerusalem, six steps, stop, build an altar, sacrifice to the Lord. Six more steps, stop, build an altar, sacrifice to the Lord. Why six steps? What is significant about the number six in the Bible? It is the number of a man. That is the human number. It's just short of seven. Seven, that number of completion. That number of God doing everything and making things right. Well, six doesn't quite get there. Six, 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 as we saw a couple chapters previous. It's not a date on the calendar. June 6, 2006. People are freaking out. It's not a date. It's a man. It is the number of man, that incomplete man. And I'll tell you what, if you want to live an altered life, you take six steps and you stop and you recognize the altar. That is the cross of Jesus Christ. In our humanity, in our sinfulness, we stop and we recognize the altar. And we see what God did. And we see that it is not our human nature that's going to get us through. We can go six steps, but we've got to stop. And worship before the altar. If you are in the place of questioning God, as David was. If you're in that place where you're not sure what God's doing. Maybe you're like those under the altar. You've been hurt. You've been battered about. And here you are under the altar going, how long, O Lord? I don't understand. Why did Uzzah have to die? Why did this person in my life have to die? Why do I have this disease? Why do I have this struggle? Why is all this going on, Father? And you're crying out as if you're one under the altar. You need to look to the altar. To see what Jesus did on the cross. And recognize God has a plan. And perhaps you need to just stop every six steps and build an altar. Because we're incomplete. We lack understanding. The martyred saints cry out, but how long? Later now, go back to Revelation 16. Later, they understand, they see, they get it. The vengeance is poured out and they finally can say, Yes, O Lord, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. And my friends, you might not understand what's happening in life right now, but you will. And you will praise God for His righteous judgments. It will make sense. It doesn't have to make sense now. It will later. We will say, O Lord God, true and mighty are your judgments. Paul puts it this way, and it's very simple. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Now, 
We see in a mirror dimly. Then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I will know fully just as I have been fully known. I don't understand what's going on in my life right now. I don't understand my circumstances, what I have to deal with. But God knows what He's doing. And I can trust in that. So when you're unsure, fearful, if you're doubting, remember the altar, remember the altar, remember the cross of Calvary and what Jesus paid for us. Verse 8, the fourth angel now comes along and pours out his bowl upon the sun and it was given it to scorch men with fire. Verse 9, men were scorched with fierce heat and they blasphemed the name of God, absolutely unbelievable here. They blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues and they did not repent so as to give him glory. The fourth bowl. The sun now goes supernova. That's what the picture is behind the verses there. I can show it to you better later. A supernova. The sun now is darkened. Science has, has studied and can tell us that one of the most energetic explosive events is called a supernova. At the end of a star's lifetime, when its nuclear fuel is exhausted and no longer is supported by the release of nuclear energy, it literally collapses inward and releases a huge amount of heat and energy. And it's a fascinating, fascinating thing that this may be exactly what's happening here. When God darkens the sun, he causes it to finally go supernova. The protective ozone layer completely wiped out and destroyed. This, by the way, is true global warming. Right? Someone probably ought to mention this to Al Gore. Verse 10. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain. So bowl number four, the sun explodes. It goes supernova. It literally goes out. Bowl number five, the, tie, the skies go completely dark. Black. Interesting that this bowl is poured out literally on the throne of the beast and his kingdom. Well, where's that? At this point in human history, the throne of the beast, I believe, will be the region of Babylon, present-day Iraq. I believe that that's where the throne will be set up. I'll, I'll show you why in coming studies. But the kingdom of the beast, the throne is darkened, but the kingdom of the beast may well refer to all of planet Earth, which at this time will be under the rule of the beast. So all of planet Earth goes jet black. Jesus warned against this. He said in Mark 13, 24, In those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Now again, we have a similarity to a plague of Egypt. The ninth plague. A darkness so deep, you could almost touch it. It could be felt. When I was in college, I went to uh, Carlsbad Caverns, and they take you on the tour down there, deep into the caverns where there is no light, and at one point on the tour, they turn out the lights, and they let you stand there for about five minutes. After about two minutes, you're starting to freak out, because it is, there, there's no darkness that compares, where you literally can't even see your hand in front of your face. Can you imagine walking outside, and that's the way it is? And I tell well, what about electricity? They just turn the lights on. You know, most of our electricity comes from either solar power, <laughs> which won't be there, or hydroelectric plants. What happened to the water? It's all blood. So there's no water to make the hydroelectric plants function. There's no solar energy. All of the energy drying up. Pitch blackness throughout the earth. Horrifying and frightening. 
So first things on the earth will be completely or intensely burned in bowl number four. In bowl number five, the planet will go completely dark. And by the way, following a supernova, that's something that happens in space. That's when you get the creation of a black hole. Supernova, a star will implode, explode, destroy itself, burn out, send off that intense heat, just like the sun burning up planet earth, and then, and then blackness, the black hole. It's what science calls what happens after a supernova burns itself up. This could be what God is causing to happen here, but make no mistake about it, God is causing this to happen. It is under his authority. It is in his control. It's not just that the sun is finally burned out. God determines the exact time that this happens. Now, it's interesting, Tim LaHaye, in his uh, commentary on Revelation, he writes that this darkness might be a merciful relief in the middle of God's terrible wrath. The seas go into blood and the intense heat and the boils. I mean, all of it. Think about how awful that is. And suddenly it goes dark. And LaHaye says, maybe at this point God's showing a little mercy. I don't think so. Because if God was showing mercy, explain to me why here that these people are gnawing their tongues because of pain. It's just gotten worse. It's gone from bad to worse to worser to worsest. <laughs> to Worcestershire. I mean, it's just taken off in, in a bad direction. They're gnawing at their tongues. I will never forget my first root canal. But it wasn't the root canal that was so bad. In fact, the root canal itself was wonderful because it relieved the pain. I had never been in that kind of pain in my life. We were at the dentist's office. I had a toothbrush with me because the only relief, and drugs weren't doing it, the only relief I could get from the pain was to gnaw on that toothbrush, to grind that toothbrush into the tooth that needed the root canal that was abscessed and infected and in bad shape. It was back here. I can still think about it. It was awful. My mom was with me. I was, I was in junior high. And we're sitting in the dentist's office, and I literally couldn't even sit there. I, I said, Mom, I, I've got to walk. And I've got my toothbrush, and I'm like, I don't to walk. You know, and I go out of the dentist's office, and I'm walking up and down the hallways of this dental suite, chewing on this toothbrush. You know, and people are walking by, like, what's the matter with this guy? Pain so bad that you're gnawing your tongue. You're just chewing on it. And you can, I mean, you're in so much pain, and there's no relief. There's no relief anywhere. This will be an awful time. There is no relief. This is only wrath. Now this horrible darkness was prophesied by the likes of Joel and Isaiah and Nahum and Amos and Zephaniah. They all talked about it over 2,500 years ago. Joel called it in Joel chapter 2 verse 2 a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains... So there's a great and mighty people, and there's never been anything like it, and never again will there be anything like it after it to the years of many generations. So Joel tells us something interesting. He says there's going to be this pitch blackness, this gloom, this deep darkness, and then there's going to be a coming like the dawn of many thousands of people, and he says it will be something known to many generations after that. What generations after that? The millennium. Joel is referring here to the millennial kingdom that will follow this day of intense darkness. Isaiah offers the only encouragement to the remnant of Jews alive and protected at this time. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 1. He says, Arise and shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Remember the earth is pitch black. And so that Jewish remnant, remember them tucked away in the wilderness, protected for a short time? That remnant is there. The earth goes black. 
And suddenly Isaiah's verses, his writings, his prophecies come back to them. Behold, Isaiah says in Isaiah 60 verse 2, Darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples. But, but, the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. In other words, in other words, saints, in other words, believers in Jesus, in other words, Jewish people who have given your lives over to the Lord, protected ones, the darkness signals the coming of the light. The darkness signals that coming of dawn. It's like, you've heard the phrase, the darkness before the dawn. That pitch blackness of night just before the first rays of sun begin to peek across the horizon. Why is this written here? Why is it here at this point? I think it's to remind, and Isaiah says this verse, to remind those alive at the time, it's gotten bad, it's gotten brutal, it's gotten ugly, everything is dark, but the light is right around the corner. This will be a sign. For those who believe in Jesus, who are alive at the time, for that Jewish remnant who is saved, waiting for the coming of their king, in those moments they will be able to see the darkness and know the light's coming. It's almost here. It's almost here. Now, back to the question that frames our study. I want to end on this tonight. We're not going to finish out the chapter. Just a couple more verses. Is there a point of no return where repentance is concerned? Is there a place in a life where someone has gone so far down the road that they literally cannot turn around and repent? And will there ever be a time where God says, there will no longer be any repentance? Look at verse 9 again. Men were scorched with fierce heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. You see, they recognize where it's coming from. Even quote-unquote non-believers will believe in that day. They will know that this is the work of God. Why? Because they're turning all their fury and anger and blasphemy on God. And they're blaming Him. They know where it's coming from. The world will be aware of it at the time. They blaspheme the name of God who has the power over these plagues and they did not repent so as to give Him glory. Look down at verse 11. Again, they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and they did not repent of their deeds. And it's one of the most unbelievable and almost breathtaking statements here in the last half of the tribulation in the book of Revelation. They did not repent. You will hear this phrase spoken a few more times as we study through the end part of the tribulation. They did not repent. Point of no repentance point of no return. Why? Because blasphemy, in its essence, is calling goodness evil. It's calling sunlight darkness or cool rivers blood. And it happens when a person goes so dark internally that they can no longer differentiate between the hand of providence and the hand of deception. They can't understand the difference. They can no longer see the light of the Holy Spirit. Well, let's take this a step further. Really push this point of repentance. Could Satan ever repent and find forgiveness? I see some of you shaking your heads. Anybody wonder, could Satan? Is it possible? Now, from the heart of God perspective... I happen to believe and know that the grace and mercy of God is so huge... That he could forgive anything... But I also happen to know that Satan will never, ever find repentance. In fact, not only will he not come to repentance, it can't happen. He can't come to repentance. It, it won't happen. Two reasons. Number one, satanic depravity. He is unable at this point to turn around. He's gone too far. And there are many with him who have gone too far. I believe there is a point of no return. 
Now, my friends, that doesn't mean we give up on a single human soul. As long as someone is breathing on this planet, we keep speaking the name of Jesus. However, there is a reality in this world that there are those alive today who are beyond the point of no return. They cannot come back. They cannot repent. Not because God wouldn't forgive, but because their hearts have gone so dark, they can't turn around. Satan is in that place. His inability to repent and return to God is not a measure of God's refusal to forgive. It's a measure of his own heart of darkness. You could call it a biblical firewall. That one who crosses over this firewall allows no hope or possibility to return themselves. Jesus says in, in Matthew 12.30, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And then he says this, very telling saying, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven, people. That's wonderful. That's amazing. Any sin or blasphemy shall be forgiven, people. But blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. We know it is the unforgivable sin. One sin that there is no return from. There is no repentance for blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Jesus even takes it a step further. He says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man... You speak a word against me, and it shall be forgiven you. Now, he had to say that because guess what? Peter was going to speak a word against him. Peter was going to deny him. His own apostles were going to flee from him and disown him. They would speak words against him. People in this world today will speak a word against Jesus Christ, not even knowing or understanding what they're doing. Jesus knows that. So he says, even those who speak a word against the Son of Man, you know, I will offer forgiveness. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age, nor in the age to come. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is unforgivable. Blasphemy against the Son of Man, forgivable. Why? Blasphemy against Jesus was simply a rejection of Jesus in his human form, not recognizing him to be who he said he was. Blasphemy, and that can be forgiven, because again, there are many people right now who don't recognize Jesus to be who he said he was. Who, I'll never forget the first time I heard the, the name Jesus used as a curse. I was on the log ride at Knott's Berry Farm in California. Riding that ride as we're riding along, the guys who were in the log with us were older teenagers, and they were shouting out every turn, every hill we went down. They were shouting out his name, and I had never heard it used like that before. According to Jesus, that's forgivable. Those teenagers, and I don't ever know what happened to them, but at some point later in their lives they found Jesus and understood who it was they were referring to, they could be forgiven of that. Praise God. But Jesus says, not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What's the difference? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit gang is rejection of Jesus in godly form. It's rejecting that Jesus is who he said he was. That is God among us. It's rejecting the hand of salvation that is outstretched. It's rejecting the only one who can secure you. We're told that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit unto salvation. Now the Holy Spirit is our seal, our protection, our promise of salvation. If you blaspheme the very one who seals you for salvation or can, then how can you be sealed? You turn against the very one who can save you. It's like being in the water as the ship goes down and the, and the life boat comes out next to you and someone reaches out a hand and you slap it away. How are you going to be saved? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Unforgivable. And that's the firewall. 
The point where someone crosses into the darkness of depravity, the place where the truth of God, as Paul says, is exchanged for a lie, Romans 1.25. And he's saying people will do that and they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. And in that depravity and in that blasphemy, there is an inability to return from a depth of sin. Not for lack of grace, but for depth of depravity. So satanic depravity, that's the number one reason why Satan will never return, will never repent. He is too depraved. But there's another reason, and that's prophetic destiny. For honestly, any discussion of the possibilities of of Satan's salvation, not only is it useless speculation, which we've been speculating for the last few minutes, it's impossible. Satan literally cannot cannot repent, cannot turn around, cannot be saved. Why? Because the Bible already tells us the outcome of his decisions. Because God's already seen it happen. And we are already told clearly exactly what's going to happen to Satan. Revelation 20 verse 10, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is not how things might happen, it's how things will happen. That's what we've got to understand about prophecy in the Bible. When God says these things, he's not saying, boy, unless something changes, and this is the way it's going to be. He's saying, here's the deal. This is what's coming. This is what you can expect. This is what will happen. Why? Because as I've said before, he's already seen it. God in his glorious out-of-time sovereignty has already seen. He's read the end of the book. He wrote the story. He knows what is going to happen. He has seen it from his perspective. Now, we're going to look at the sixth and seventh vials next week, but I want to end on this last thought. Romans 2.4 Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and his tolerance and his patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? I remind you that though we study the tribulation and these things are are brutal, and we look at these vile judgments and we realize these are bad, we right now live in the church age. The church age which also could be called the age of grace. We are walking, living, and breathing in an age where God is saying, I have forgiveness for anyone who will turn, for anyone who will come to me. I want to save. I will save if you will simply call out to me. But during this last half of the tribulation, the great tribulation, grace will cease to be a factor and it will be completely replaced by wrath. And wrath, wrath doesn't bring people to repentance. Not the way grace does. God is not doing this. These last seven judgments he is not doing with hopes of saving anyone for the day passes with the last martyr of the tribulation. It's over. There will no longer be opportunity to be saved. And I'm personally convinced that no one will accept Jesus during the last three and a half years of the tribulation. It won't happen anymore. Why? Because over and over and over we see they did not repent so as to give him glory. But here's the good news. God has already made provision for his people. Like he always has, like with Enoch, Back in Genesis 5.24 and Hebrews 11.5, Enoch was literally raptured before the flood. He was taken up before the world was destroyed. He is that picture of the church pulled out in time, saved, protected against that tribulation. And the church, my friends, will be safely tucked away in heaven before that tribulation period begins. 
like Noah, God makes provision. Noah, who is really a beautiful picture, not of the church, but of Israel, of the Jews, of that remnant who will believe in God. Noah went through the flood, didn't he? He wasn't pulled out before the flood. He wasn't taken out of the world like Enoch was. No, he went through the flood. However, he was protected, though he went through the flood. He rode out the flood on those waves, just like the remnant of Israel will ride out the tribulation, protected during the last three and a half years. Reminds me of the thief on the cross who was next to Jesus. And the tribulation saints, they will be with Jesus in paradise. Sacrificed up there on the cross next to the Lord. And he looks over to the Lord and says, Jesus, remember me. And Jesus says, today, today you're going to be there. Today you will be with me in paradise. But like Noah's world, or like Sodom and Gomorrah, the rest of humanity will be plunged into the full wrath of God. The day will come when repentance ceases to be a factor. And knowing that, knowing that, the question for you and I is, what are we going to do with it? And we can go home and go, wow, this is going to be bad. Glad we won't be here. Whew. Blood and darkness and the sun burning out and sores and, oh, ooh, it's awful. Be a cool movie. Or, or, we can take what we know and use it in this age of grace. We know this time is coming. We know that judgment will fall on the earth. What are you going to do with that? Who are you going to tell tomorrow? Please, please don't hear this from a preacher. How are you going to go evangelize the world now? Please hear this from the heart of God. Who are you going to tell that doesn't know Jesus right now? Who are you going to seek to save? Who are you going to share this amazing grace with? Because we right now reside in the age of grace where the God who is patient and does not want anybody to perish but for all to come to repentance... For everybody to be saved. That's God's heart. That's God's will. Don't hold out hope for the tribulation. Wrath doesn't lead to repentance. Kindness does. And that seven year tribulation that we've been studying, don't forget this, it follows 2,000 plus years of grace. And that's where we are right now. Though at the tail end of it, I believe. So let's get busy. And let's share the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we are called to share. And let's see if we can be used by God to lessen the number of people who will go through this awful judgment. Father, we need the motivation and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to carry out this task. We know, Father, that it does not rest on human wisdom or skill. It doesn't rest, Father, on us making a nice cart to carry your holiness into the world. It rests on us, first and foremost, relying on your Holy Spirit in our lives. Seeking to know your word so that we can live in your will. And Father, I pray that you will empower us by your spirit to have words in the right season, in the right moment. I pray, Father, tonight, over this group of people gathered here, I pray for holy opportunities, Father. I pray for divine appointments this week. I ask that you will give each person here an opportunity to share with a family member, a friend, a, a, a business partner, someone in their lives to be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray for the opportunity and I pray, Jesus, as you promised, your spirit would bring to remembrance all that you said. I pray for the words and ask this week specifically that you will give us a chance 
to speak the name of Jesus to someone who desperately needs to hear it. Father, don't let us get away from this. I pray that you would bind this to us as a burden on our hearts to speak your name. And Spirit, we rely on you to do the rest. In Jesus' name, amen.